All right, Exodus chapter 15. I think we're just going to look at just the 15th chapter uh, together this evening. Remember the context of where we're at at this point. The children of Israel have just come through this incredible, miraculous experience of God uh, opening, parting the Red Sea on their behalf, and them being able to uh, walk through the midst of the sea on dry land. Uh, in fact, if you notice, just almost a sort of a, a synopsis, a summary of what we looked at last time to kind of set the stage of where we're at. If you see verse 29, it kind of as a reminder to us says the children of Israel uh, had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. This is chapter 14, verse 29. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So at this point we find Moses and all the congregation of the children of Israel on the other side of the Red Sea. And notice verse 30 even takes uh, note for us. As they're looking back, they see uh, the Egyptians uh, dead on the seashore. No doubt, perhaps, you know, uh, their horses, uh, their corpses laying there. And just uh, the incredible astonishment, kind of the awe. You know, the Bible tells us to stand in all of God. And I guarantee you, after what they had just experienced in the parting of the sea, remember, they were kind of boxed in at looked like that it was inevitable they were going to be destroyed there was nowhere to turn there was no way and God made a way for them when there was no way he made a way where there had never been a way before and this incredible unique miracle probably one of the most uh, uh, probably most memorable miracles that happened with the nation of Israel it's referenced all throughout the Old Testament uh, as they refer back to it their enemies refer to this particular miracle as a great demonstration of God's power and having walked through on dry land seeing the walls of water on both sides and then God seeing him close the sea back over uh, to really deal with to eliminate their enemies uh, they did nothing other than uh, believe the promise of God and obediently respond to it in faith and the Lord did everything else for them he just told them to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he would accomplish for them uh, and that's exactly what took place so here they are on the other side now standing there on the shoreline having just seen the great work which the Lord had done and it's at that point we then come to chapter 15 Verse 1, we see now their response to what just took place. We see them on the other side, life on the other side, if you will. This is life on the other side of God's deliverance, life on the other side of God's salvation, the salvation of the Lord. Uh, what is life on the other side like? And of course, as we've talked about, so many of these things are beautiful pictures, uh, typologies, things for us to be able to see and think about as Christians. You know, what should it be like for us on the other side 
of God's salvation? What should our response be on the other side of God's great deliverances and the great works that God does in our life, whether it's saving us uh, from our sin, delivering us uh, from the world in which we once lived in of bondage and slavery, whether it's seeing the great works that God does in our life when he makes a way when there was no way before and it looked like it was impossible and he opens a door and delivers us through something. Well, this is what we see happen right on the other side. Their great example, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So chapter 15 basically gives to us uh, a song. It gives to us a song in which they sang. And this actually becomes the first recorded song in the scripture. And as we've said before, one of the ways of which when we study the Bible is a methodology and thing to take note of is what is often called the law of first mention. In other words, the first time something shows up in the Bible, it usually sets the tone and the best and most clear understanding of how something then is to be interpreted uh, and to be understood kind of in that tone and context the other times it then reappears in the Bible. So it's interesting to take note of the first time you see certain words in the Bible. And this is the first time in the Bible we have our first recorded song, the first time we have a reference uh, to someone singing the word sing, the first time it shows up here in the Bible. And I think there are great things to take note of here. You know, first thing, even being this, uh, that what precipitated them actually coming to the place where they find themselves singing to the Lord. And really, I think that first word of chapter 15, verse 1, then, then Moses and the children of Israel sang. Well, what does then refer to? It refers to what had just taken place. The thing that prompted them to sing to the Lord, to write a song to the Lord in worship of him, was the deliverance of God they just experienced in their life. It was the salvation that God had just wrought for them. It was that that prompted Moses and the congregation to put words to music and to use a song to worship God responsively. And it was only then, after that happened, that we find them doing this. And I, I point that out for this reason, because I think that when someone has genuinely experienced the salvation of God in their life, then they have a song to sing to the Lord. It's at that point then when someone says, you know what, <laughs> I want to render something back to God. And at that point, you have something to sing about. Do you understand what I'm saying? Before you're saved and born again and you truly experience the realization of the forgiveness of your sins and the reality that your eternal destiny has just changed from the fire of hell to the glory of heaven, you really don't have something to sing about. So it does not shock me when I see someone who's unconverted, if they attend a church service, not singing. Uh, or kind of standing there and just kind of maybe mumbling the word. Because really, truth be told, they don't really have something to sing about. But when I met Jesus Christ and I truly knew my sins were forgiven and, and the Lord had wrought his salvation and I had that experience, then I had something to sing about. And you know what? I'll tell you, if you can experience genuinely the salvation of God in your life, and not have an interest to sing to the Lord responsively, that's a little perplexing to me. I mean, if you don't have a reason to sing 
knowing that God wants to be praised, he wants to be worshipped, that then you would want to sing to the Lord, that's peculiar to me. It's because when they experienced God's deliverance, it was then, after the salvation of God was experienced, then they sang to the Lord. Then they wanted to sing to the Lord. They had something to actually sing about. Now, take notice as well as we go through this uh, song, as we kind of look at the lyrics of this first song. Again, interesting, one of the last references we have to a song is in Revelation chapter 15, where it says they sang the song of Moses and the Lamb, uh, which goes to show me that uh, you know in heaven uh, there's going to be singing, in the eternal dimension there's going to be singing, and it seems that this song of Moses is actually potentially going to be one of the songs that is utilized to worship God in the eternal dimension. So, you know, great for you tonight. You're here. You'll know the lyrics. You want to commit them to memory. You won't look like a tourist when you're in eternity. There'll be other people around who are sitting there saying, hey, are they going to project the words? Say, yeah, listen, if you would have been there when we studied Exodus chapter 15, you wouldn't need the song sheet. Here in the millennium, because you would know the words because we studied Exodus chapter 15. So, uh, you know, kudos to you. You're going to be a step ahead. You won't look as touristy in heaven because you will know the lyrics to this song and, of course, some of the other songs that we'll be singing. And, you know, as you look at this song, again, if you are someone who has an interest in leading musical worship, in writing songs for the Lord, if God gives you a song to write to the Lord, which is a gift, I think, and at times God will give that uh, to those who are inclined and gifted in that way by his spirit. I think there are important things to learn here. I think this is a great chapter worthy of meditation, specifically from that perspective. You know, a couple things just from a, a bird's eye observation. You'll notice regarding this uh, first song here uh, that this song is a song, first of all, that is all about the Lord. The focus of the song is God. It's not really the individual. The focus of this song, the first recorded song in Scripture, it's really all about the Lord. There are some about a dozen or so references in just a few verses to the Lord himself. There are constant references about him. And you know, when we sing, we should be singing about the Lord. That should be the focus of our worship. As well, notice just chapter 15, verse 1, I will sing, circle the word, to the Lord. That's how it begins. I will sing to the Lord. It wasn't just singing as the result of, hey, how about we just saw, you know, like in a, uh, you go to a baseball game, and I haven't been to one in a long time, but you go to a professional baseball game, and usually at some point on top of singing the national anthem or something like that, which everybody knows and maybe the whole crowd sings, usually they sing the, the song, Take Me Out to the Ballpark, right? And it's so common, everybody knows it, or the words are up on the big jumbotron screen, and you got a whole entire stadium of people kind of, you know, take me, and they're singing together. It's almost like a secular worship service, and they're all singing the same song, but they're not singing to anyone. They're just singing collectively a song together, uh, in a sense, almost like a choir or something, or just a group of people, you know, sitting around singing some Christmas songs. Well, listen, no, when we sing as God's people, we should be singing to the Lord. We're not just singing words to follow the musicians and talented people who lead us in music from the front. We should be singing to the Lord. You should be singing with the perspective in your heart and mind, hey, I, I am rendering this song to the Lord. I'm trying to serenade the Lord. Now, depending upon what your thought is of your voice, 
don't take that in the wrong way because the wonderful thing is is God's so loving he's I think he's he's graciously tone deaf so I don't let it ever be excused oh well the way I sound so that's why I don't sing well listen that's just silly the Bible says in Ephesians 5 part of being filled with the spirit is is rendering the Lord's you know psalms and hymns and spiritual songs it says making melody in your heart to the Lord uh, and God's looking upon the condition of our heart. So whether you sound angelic or whether you sound whatever the opposite extreme is, God is pleased with a song that's coming from your heart. And we have a singing faith, as the, the Jewish faith, the Christian faith. It's a singing faith. It's something God's given to us. It's beneficial for us to have an ability to express worship to God. And it is something, apparently, that it pleases God. It honors the Lord. We're told to sing to him. It's a way to express to him the glory that he rightly deserves. So it's a song focused on the Lord. It's a song sung to the Lord, and that's how we should sing when we worship to the Lord, not to the musicians or for anyone else, but we're singing to God, and that's the reason we should and where our perspective should be. And again, thirdly, it was sang in response to an experience with the Lord. And, you know, as you sing through the worship songs, uh, you know, whether they're hymns or praise courses, you may, you know, seek to worship the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and take into consideration a lot of worship songs that have been written, whether hymns or courses and praise songs, a lot of them are written as the result of a response of an experience that that particular individual had with God uh, in relation to what the scriptures may say or their own personal experience. And out of their experience, like this song, they write a song to the Lord to then be used by others. Hey, I had this incredible experience with God. Uh, how can I thank God for what he's done? We need, we, need to, we need to make a song out of that. And somebody in this day, again, whether it was Moses or someone... As they went through the experience of the Red Sea, somebody said, hey, yeah, I mean, it's great to write that down and record, but, but we need to put that to song. And isn't it amazing how when we sing things, there's, it's like glue, how, how you can hear a song on the radio and even a song you don't want to sing, and then you'll be singing that song all day long. There's something very powerful about music. Uh, now, that can be both a blessing and a curse in regards to what we sow into our minds. Uh, but here... I think one of the reasons God's given us music is he knows it's a great way because it's something that stays with us. And it's amazing to me how I can you know, retain in my mind you know, melodies and lyrics and, and things from songs when there are lots of other things I wish I could remember, but there's just something about how those things stick with us to overflow themes and expressions of praise to God. So they now begin to sing this song. They declare, I will sing, notice again, to the Lord, and again, take notice of these things. For he has triumphed gloriously. Again, they're singing about God's triumph. Not what they've done. It's what God has done. He has triumphed gloriously, expressing what God has done in response to that experience. The horse and its rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song again he's the one who empowers me he's the one who enables me i love that it's not just the lord gives me strength it says the lord is my strength because if he's a part of our life and he's with us uh, he's not just imparting or giving some strength to us he is our strength he actually enables us and he is our song he's the thing the, the thing that we 
fine to sing about. He's the reason that we have a song is because of who he is and what he's done for us. And he has, verse 2, become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and notice, I will exalt him. Again, he has become my salvation. Again, they're just referring to exactly what God said he would do through Moses' words to them back in chapter 14 when God said to Moses, tell the people, don't be afraid, stand still, and you will see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. Hold your peace. Just let the Lord triumph on your behalf. And here they're just reflecting on that. He has become my salvation. Now, if that was true for them, being delivered out of their situation that was precarious and through the Red Sea and God giving them this salvation from the impending judgment upon them from Pharaoh, how much more true is that of us, that he has become my salvation? Uh, literally, Jehovah God has become, as a Christian, my salvation because Jehovah God, Jesus himself, came in the flesh and God himself not just accomplished my salvation, he became my salvation. Jesus literally came as the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and became literally my salvation through his work of redemption for you and I. So uh, how much more is that true for us? He is my God. And again, notice the emphasis upon the conscious choice. Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord. Again, verse 2, we have these repeated references. I will praise him, he is my father's God, and I will exalt him. I will sing, I will praise him, I will exalt him. Notice there's a conscious decision. Worship is not just about feelings. The Bible speaks of a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice is something that costs us. That's what the word sacrifice means. There's a cost involved. And there needs to be for me. Uh, an important understanding that I will praise him, I will exalt him, because truth be told, sometimes what's going on in my life or what I'm experiencing or the, the, you know, the condition I'm in mentally, emotionally, even spiritually, I may not feel like worshiping God. But there's something very wonderful that happens when I say, but I will sing to him. I will exalt him. You know, like Job, you know, you know, just understanding despite all that he went through, you know, that he was still going to say, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, though he had gone through the things he had, that that was a part of him that said, you know, but still I'm going to continue to worship the Lord. And I don't think that was coming out of his feelings. It was coming out of a faith-based decision to consciously choose to exalt God and to worship him. Verse 3 goes on to say, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains who are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. So again, we see this anthropomorphism basically trying to use human terminology and descriptions to describe something of the attributes and nature of God. Verse 3, there we read, the Lord is a man of war. The idea is that he goes to battle for us. He defends us. He fights our battles for us. That's what, again, referring back to what was said in chapter 14, uh, that the Lord will fight for you. The Bible tells us in other places the battle belongs 
to the Lord. And the idea here is that they recognize God came to their defense. God dealt with their enemies. Uh, God did not leave them to fight their own battles and, and to deal with the warfare on their own. He came to their aid. And you know what? Is God loving? Is God gracious? All those things? Yes, absolutely. But I am glad that my God at times is also a mighty warrior uh, who comes to my aid and who fights your battles and who defends us. And when conflict happens and especially when there is spiritual warfare to know that God is the one who is a man of war and a mighty warrior who comes to our aid and deals with the devil and his demons and, and fights on our behalf our battles even as here God put down the ungodly king the evil king that was opposing them in the flesh which was Pharaoh and his army that God cast them down by his power it says they were drowned in the red sea the depths covered them they sank to the bottom like a stone now again take notice as well as we go through here i didn't reference it in chapter 14 i'm going to take a moment just to say something in chapter 15 of course we know that there are those that try through logic to refute the reality that it was really the Red Sea that God parted. And they said, well, no, it was just the Reed Sea. It wasn't really the Red Sea. It was just kind of a, a marshy area, a swampy area. And when they went through, that's what, you know, that's what it was. It wasn't really like, you know, a Red Sea. Listen, as you read the account from God's perspective in Exodus 14 and Exodus 15 now, keep in mind, you have people who were eyewitnesses. People who actually experience it. And look at the language that they're using. That doesn't sound to me here, and take notice as we go through the next verses as well, as you add up all the references. I don't see any indication here of a reference of something like a swampy territory. Uh, when you read things like, you know, cast into the sea, they were drowned in the sea, the depths covered them, they sank to the bottom like a stone. You see, when you start trying to say that they were passing through a swampy area and that's why they were able to pass through because it was just maybe 12 or 18 inches of water, uh, the logical conclusion of that becomes difficult because, okay, so if you're saying the Israelites passed through 12 to 18 inches of water through the Reed Sea in a swampy area, uh, how did Pharaoh's army drown in 12 inches of water? You know, it would be like them drowning in a kiddie pool. Uh, I don't think... <laughs> One of the most powerful empires in that day with mighty warriors would have all been destroyed and drowned and laying over the seashore if it was just 12 inches of swampy, muddy water. See, it, just, it makes a bigger miracle. How did the Egyptians drown them? Well, no, the Bible's making it very clear. It, you know, they drowned because it was the Red Sea and they sank to the bottom like a stone. Uh, and again, I don't need a God who can lead me through a swamp. I need a God who can part open a mighty sea and lead me through on dry. That's, that's the kind of God that I need. So I'd much rather just take the eyewitness experiences who lived its words at face value and realize what my God did because that's the kind of God that I need in my life. And again, when you read the language, it seems very clear. Now, as you come to verse 6, notice you have a little bit of a change here. Verses 1 through 5, they're singing about the Lord. Now, notice the language in verse 6 very clearly changes, and they are singing directly 
to the Lord, because you now read, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And I like that. There is a time to sing about the Lord in our music, but also there is certainly an importance of in our worship music and the songs that we sing to make sure that we are singing to the Lord and expressing ourselves directly to him because we want to be singing to the Lord, not just lyrics and statements always about him. So again, they're, they're directly singing to God in the first person. Now, Lord, your right hand has done this. You have become glorious in power. Verse 7, and in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath, and it consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. Again, look at the language. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed. And that word there, congealed, literally means to... To become firm, it actually is a word that also in the Hebrew is used to refer to like the curdling of cheese, you know, or or like picture like a gelatin uh, type, uh, you know, substance there. Again, the waters congealed in, notice, the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. Again, the enemy being confident, thinking, hey, I'll overtake, I'll overcome with his threatening words. In the same way that our enemy so often, that's what he does, you know, through threatening words and statements. That's it. I'm going to overtake. I'm going to take you down. And he creates these fears through thoughts and statements or things that we hear uh, that want to cause us to think that God is not going to protect us and that he is going to overcome us. And, and he brings those threatening, fearful thoughts and statements into our lives that we're going to be destroyed. And verse 10 says, but you blew with your wind. And again, the language, see it? The sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now, when I read all that, again, it's so evident to me exactly what was happening. The depths congealed, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. This was the Red Sea itself and an incredible miracle that God was accomplishing. Verse 11, they go on, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Again, just the the awe, the astonishment, who is like you, Lord? And, and the answer to that is almost sort of rhetorical. Who is like you? It's implied. No one. There's no one like the Lord. Uh, in fact, that is the one thing that should prompt us all the more to want to worship the Lord. You know, it's amazing how much really, if you think about it, devotion adoration, attention that we give to lots of other things in this world. We, we are people who are created to worship. And I don't care who you are, everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. And it's almost rather silly when you think about it that we would actually worship anything other than God because the one thing that makes God holy and makes God who he is is he is separate. It's his separateness 
that there is no one like him, that there is something about him, the perfection, the wonder, everything about him uh, that makes him someone who we should want to praise and to give adoration to. Verse 12, he says, you stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. You, verse 13, in your mercy, they sing, led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. So again, taking note that not only that God did what he did, but the Lord was the one who was providing direction to them. They say, Lord, you not only opened the way for us, but remember the we talked about the pillar of cloud by uh, by day and the pillar of fire by night and that God's presence was with them and would be with them throughout this entire wilderness wandering. Uh, and the presence of God wasn't just sending them forward, but the presence of God was leading them and moving along with them. And all they needed to do was just keep their eye on the Lord and where he was going and stay in step with them. And here they're acknowledging as a form of praise and appreciation, Lord, you led us. You have guided us in your strength. And they appreciated the, the leading of God and the guidance of the Lord, even as much as his deliverance and his incredible redemption. Verse 14, now they notice they begin to almost sing and worship in faith, focusing towards the things not just that God had done, but the things that they knew God would do. So there's an element of faith recognizing what God would do for them and already beginning to express thanks for that. Verse 14, they sing, The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away and fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. So again, in faith, understanding that the presence of God and the power of God that had been accomplished on their behalf was so evident that that, remember, and we see this as we start to study further in the Old Testament, became something that the fear and the dread of the children of Israel who worshipped and served Jehovah God preceded them wherever they went to where their enemies, who really should have been very threatening to Israel, that were way more capable and competent as well militarily, they're nothing other than a band of slaves at this point. They're not trained military warriors. They, they don't have the ability to accomplish some you know, victories in battle over different people groups. Uh, but yet God was going ahead of them and preparing the way for them and even dealing with their enemies before they would even face them and confront them. And we see how this exact thing that's referenced here in faith is exactly what happens. How as they would go into territories, people would be trembling with intimidation not because of who Israel was, but because of who Israel's God was. And they were threatened, not by them, but they were intimidated and had a level of reverence for their God because they heard of the parting of the Red Sea and you know the things that God had done for them. I mean, just as I, I think of this one just specific example, and you don't have to turn there, but listen to, to Joshua chapter 5. Of course, this is as they begin to 
proceed into the promised land many years later. Joshua 5 verse 1 says this, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites on the west side of the Jordan and the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. So again, God would repeatedly fulfill this throughout, and it's just such a beautiful reminder that the Lord knows our insufficiencies, he knows our incapabilities, our, our lack of what we possess to be able to be victorious on our own. But yet, because of his presence with us, uh, he makes up for all that, even in this sense militarily, so that their enemies, rather than attack them, would have a sense of reverence. And it would become a shield to them, and they would, in a sense, stay away because of this level of intimidation, because of who God was in their midst. It's quite an amazing thing the Lord's presence does for our lives. Verse 17, we then conclude, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Now, Again, here at this point, God hasn't given specific word yet to Moses and to Israel uh, of instructions regarding things like the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple and the fact that they would be established in Jerusalem, that that's where the Lord would put his name and his presence ultimately where the temple would be. Uh, but yet here by faith, sensing it seems prophetically, uh, and again, I, I like this because God hasn't given, it seems, specific instruction yet, but that there's something stirring in the spirit of those who are writing this song as they're singing it, where there's a prophetic element that they're speaking of things that are yet to come. Again, starting in verse 14, uh, we're speaking of something that is yet to come. And there's, an, there's a sense of a prophetic element that they recognize, they sense something that God is going to do. Uh, and here, even in verse 17, that the Lord was going to bring them in and plant them in the mountain of his inheritance, in the place which he had made for his own dwelling. Again, referring maybe to Jerusalem, to the temple, the tabernacle. Again, it could be a reference to any one of those things. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And I love this because I really do tend to believe uh, that there is a, a very at times... A prophetic element to a healthy spiritual use of music. I think many a times that there is a prophetic gift that sometimes is manifested to those and through those who are musically inclined, who receive a song from the Lord, who at times you know maybe lead in musical capacities. I just I just seen this again. It's a conviction just of my heart, and that's you know being dogmatic about it, but. Even as here, through this song, there's something prophetic that's coming forth. I've seen many times sort of a prophetic manifestation happening through those who are musically gifted and inclined. And just in a very beautiful way here, there's this sense of assurance. There's an encouragement. There's an exhortation that's coming even through the music here specifically of how the Lord was going to bring them in and plant them and how he was going to establish his sanctuary 
by his hands. Just a very beautiful reference to what he would ultimately do. In verse 18, notice not just then, but all the way out. I mean, the, the Lord shall reign. Look how it concludes. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. That sense of all the way out uh, into the eternal dimension. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Verse 19, for the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen back into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. So sort of a postscript to the things that were just referred to. And verse 20 says, Then Miriam, remember she was Moses' sister. She was the one who took Moses as a baby in the basket we saw in the early chapters of Exodus and put him there into the river so that he would be found and preserved and ultimately could become the deliverer that God intended him to be. And she watched the basket, remember, and then went back and reported to her mother. And uh, again, so here she is now as an elderly woman, probably chronologically somewhere around 90 years old at this point, because she was older than Moses, if you remember, uh, who at this time was around 80 when his ministry began. So I, I love the reference, though. Here's the first reference to a prophetess in the Bible, which goes to show you that the gift of prophecy is not gender-specific. Uh, we see in the Bible those like Miriam and Anna, who was in the temple in the New Testament, we see both prophets and prophetess, uh, men and women, both being able, as God works through their lives, to exercise a prophetic gift uh, as God gives it to them. And Miriam had this uh, prophetic gifting in her life. The Bible calls her Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, Moses' brother. And she took the timbrel in her hand, a musical instrument, uh, and all the women went out after her with timbrels, and yes, it says, and with dances. So, again, the, the Hebrew uh, shuffle, I don't know what that was there, but <laughs> again, I, I think if you experience something like the Red Sea, uh, you know, there's a time to sing and, and maybe to do a little Hebrew boogie on top of that. I mean, when you've experienced something like that as unto the Lord, you know, with a pure heart, just the, you know, everything in you engaged. Again, much like you see in the ancient culture when men would return from war and triumphs, it would be the women who were waiting uh, patiently worrying about their sons and their husbands and their fathers away at battle and did they make it, would they return victoriously and when they would return typically the women in the ancient cultures would go out and there would be like this, a grand celebration, singing and dancing and, and celebrating the triumph and this is the same kind of idea here, they've just come through this incredible triumph, they've sang this song and now all the women being led it seems by Miriam as sort of a, you know, a, a women's leader here among them, among the women, that says all the women, and that was a lot of women, if you keep in mind how many uh, Israel was numbered at this time. And Miriam answered, sing to the Lord, notice, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Now take notice how short her statements are. There's her exhortation to sing to the Lord. But take notice, again, Miriam the prophetess, and how long does it take to read verse 21? Uh, a matter of a few seconds. She makes a few statements, which I believe is just sort of a prophetic encouragement or exhortation. The Bible says that he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, or comfort. 
Again, you notice prophecy is, is not preaching. Prophecy is not an extended message. Prophecy is not a, a lengthy explanation like teaching is or, or preaching is. Prophecy is typically a, a concise, uh, maybe few statements. It's an exhortation. It's a timely word in season of comfort or exhortation or edification. And here we see Miriam exercising that as she's giving an exhortation to the people to sing to the Lord because he has triumphed gloriously in the way he has. Verse 22, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now keep in mind here, God's now bringing them into the wilderness and he's taking them through a triumph, but now he's going to begin to develop their character. And now they're going to begin to experience things that God might teach them lessons, that God might develop them. We now have the first reference to them being, verse 22, in the wilderness. They're now beginning their journey in the actual wilderness itself, in a wilderness, desert-like climate. And it says they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, in a desert climate, one day without water is difficult. Two days without water is extremely difficult. To go three days without water would be very, very taxing and almost impossible. So it's very understandable the duress they're under, the struggle that they are in. They're in a parched uh, condition here and they're thirsting tremendously, at which point verse 23 says, now when they came to Mara. They could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it is called Mara. The word Mara literally means bitter or bitterness. And the people, notice, complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So here they are. They haven't had anything to drink for three days. They're extremely thirsty. Apparently, they see some source of water up in front of them in this territory called Mara. And as you can imagine, almost like the you know, opening of the doors on uh, you know, Toys R Us uh, on Black Friday, and everybody just, you know, just goes running forward with incredible intensity. Here you have a multitude of people in the desert who have had nothing to drink for three days. They now see a source of water the natural inclination, it's a normal desire, they go rushing towards this water and they're extremely excited, they're anticipating, wonderful, great, this is going to quench our thirst, we'll be satisfied, we'll be refreshed. And then the first few people to get to it begin to drink it and it's brackish and it's bitter and it's not good clean water to drink and, and instantly what they thought would satisfy and what they thought would refresh them and fulfill them uh, it doesn't. It actually becomes a very bitter, dissatisfying experience. And you know, isn't that very picturesque of kind of some of the lessons that God lets us learn as we walk by faith and journey through the wilderness? When, you know, it says in Psalm 63, you know, we live in this world which is like a dry and weary land where there is no water. And, and we have certain thirsts in our lives. And sometimes we see things that we think will quench our thirst. 
And we go rushing towards it. And maybe it's a relationship with someone. Or maybe it's some experience. or And, what, and, we, and we think, hey, I found my oasis. And man, as soon as I I'll finally, this desire will be met. I'll be fulfilled. I'll be satisfied. And then as soon as we begin to indulge it, sometimes we have this very bitter experience of the disappointment of realizing, man, not only did this not satisfy this actually ended up falling apart or falling through or it didn't come to pass. And we go through these bitter experiences in our lives. And sometimes part of that is it's prescribed by God. You know, part of the Christian journey, just like it was their journey, is going to include times of bitter experiences in this life. We live in a fallen world, uh, and in moderation at times, God, and it can come in different ways. Maybe it's a health issue or some tragedy we go through or just disappointments or things falling through. Part of this life involves drinking some of the bitter waters of a cursed and fallen planet that we live on and the disappointment and dissatisfaction of things that we wished and thought would be fulfilling to us, and yet they become very maybe painful, disappointing bitter experiences and just like them what do we do instead of go talk to god we just we start to complain and we get in you know disgruntled and sadly sometimes bitter experiences make bitter people and that's the danger we have to be careful of you know letting a root of bitterness uh, grow in our hearts and here and moses had to get used to this because this came a kind of a repeated thing where things wouldn't go well and it was always his fault. You know, they always went back to Moses and, you know, had to shift the blame for what God was doing somewhere. And Moses was a human representative. So they complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So he cries out to the Lord as he typically did. Lord, what do I do? He prays and seeks God. And it says the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Now, Interesting, when you look at the language there, the Hebrew term, the Lord showed him a tree. That word showed literally means you know, that God instructed or revealed something to him. And the idea being is that this tree was probably there, but there was something beyond God just saying, do you see that tree, Moses? It seems to indicate in the language there was a lesson or an insight. There was something God was showing him. There was an instruction or a lesson that God was showing him. In this particular tree, God, again, and what was it? But God points to this tree, says, Moses, take that, cast it into the water, and what is bitter will then be healed, and it will become sweet and satisfying, and it will quench the thirst that needs to be satisfied in their lives. Now, people look at that and say, okay, well, that's, you know, was this particular kind of root that's found out in the wilderness in the desert, when you cast it in the water, there are certain... You know, uh, you know, elements and minerals and things that take place. And you know what? That may very likely be possible. There are certain apparently roots and different types of plants that can have a purifying effect upon water when it's, you know, brackish or bitter to help, you know, resolve things with different mineral compounds. That's possible. Uh, I don't think that takes away from the fact that I tell you this. It was a miracle at the exact same time because, uh, you know, God didn't need to use anything. It makes you wonder if Moses was thinking, well, maybe I should use this rod because the last time I used this rod, <laughs> something really marvelous happened. But again, I love how God mixes things up. And God says, no, we're not using the rod this time, Moses. No, no, we're not, we're not in a formulas, Moses. 
we're into living by faith. And this time, Moses, you see that tree? I want you to go over there. Cut that tree down or take a branch off of it and toss. So he had to, there was learning to listen to God. He was learning to live by faith. They were learning to hear what God would do in each situation to resolve their circumstance. And he throws this tree into the water. And whether God used something natural as a part of his miracle, miraculously, all this water now is somehow healed and it becomes sweet and satisfying and it meets the need of the thirst that existed among them. Now, I can't help and I hope you see it as well, but to recognize something very beautiful there. And again, what was God showing to Moses? How interesting that they find themselves in a bitter experience, something that is bitter. And God says, here's the resolution. Moses, do you see that tree? Take that tree and throw it in the midst of that bitter experience. And that bitter experience will somehow become sweet. And it will satisfy and quench the thirst that's not being satisfied because of the bitterness of what they're experiencing. Again, what did we just study even this past Sunday morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. You know, Galatians chapter 3 also refers to Jesus suffering on the wooden cross in reference to him suffering upon a tree. And again, as we seek to always want to see Christ throughout the word of God, I can't help but to think how... You know, isn't that so often how God, in the midst of the most bitter experiences of a sinful, cursed, fallen world that we all go through, and how sometimes the cross of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can make the most bitter experiences of life somehow become sweet and actually allow our thirst to be quenched in the midst of things that we're going through, and how maybe in a situation where something bad happens and there's tremendous bitterness and a very bitter experience maybe of disappointment or hurt, and what's the resolution? The Lord says, you need to look to the tree. You need to look to the cross. You need to look to Calvary. And you need to take Calvary and you need to insert the cross and your understanding of what you see in the cross into this bitter experience and somehow when the cross is brought back into things and back into perspective how all of a sudden forgiveness begins to flow and what's a very bitter messy situation can be healed and be restored and be resolved and can actually become a sweet thing that actually meets our need again and if we are to be the people john 7 says we're supposed to be where jesus says if anyone thirsts let him come to me and he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his innermost being shall gush forth torrents of living water. And he was referring to the Holy Spirit. You know what? Uh, if we're to be people like that, uh, we need the, the cross. We need the tree. We need to see what the cross means in its fullest extent so that we're not a polluted fountain, but so that we are a fountain of the sweet living waters of the forgiveness and the love of Jesus Christ coming out of our lives. Well, Verse 25 says, and there he, God, made a statute and ordinance with them. And notice, this is what God was doing. He was testing them. And it wouldn't be the first time. God was testing them, developing their character, allowing them to learn things about themselves, but not just themselves. Notice also they were learning things about him. Because verse 26, God said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. God says, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians, referring to, no doubt, the plagues. And we saw some of the plagues as a disciplinary means, 
and judgmental uh, purpose that God brought upon the Egyptians. And God says to them, for I am the Lord who heals you. And there's that first reference to God revealing himself. The, the Hebrew there is Jehovah Rapha, just like we saw back in Genesis 22, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provision. Here we have Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer, that God who becomes our provision, God himself also becomes our healer, the one who heals our diseases and heals our afflictions by his power uh, in our lives. And that is a part of who God reveals himself to be. And what a beautiful thing here. In the midst of their testing, they learn something about God. They see something about God that's new and that's revelatory. And you know, when we go through difficult times and testings in our lives, sometimes it's not just to learn things about ourselves and let our character be developed. It's in the midst of testings and difficult things we go through that oftentimes God reveals things to us about who he is. We see things about him that are new that we never saw before. This is the first time that God revealed to them, listen, I'm not just Jehovah Jireh. I'm also Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals you, the one who heals your diseases, who can heal your afflictions. And interesting here, God states this principle sort of for the first time, telling them that if they obeyed the word of God, his commandments and his statutes, that it would result in them experiencing healthy lives. Uh, and, you know, and it is very interesting. There was a book even written years ago. I believe it was called... Um, uh, none of these diseases or something like that, where a, you know, individual from the medical profession, you know, from a scientific perspective, even evaluated the Old Testament um, things that God gave to Israel through Leviticus and so forth, you know, the, the, the kosher diet and the different hygiene practices that God gave to them of cleansing and so forth. And how looking at those things, how clear it was that God was giving those things to them, not only just to set them apart, to make them unique as the people of God, but how so many of those things were also very, very beneficial from a hygiene and a health perspective. The way God was telling them to eat, the way God was telling them to cleanse certain things, to, to quarantine people when they were sick, and you know th that God in his wisdom was giving them instructions saying, look, if you live the way I tell you to live according to my word, you will experience a much more healthy life. You will avoid a lot of the afflictions and problems and unhealthy things that many a times, let's be honest, as human beings, we've brought into our lives because of just disregard of what the Word of God says. How much of the suffering, I'm not saying this equates to everything, but how much of the suffering and human problems that exist in our world, many of them are connected to directly, are just complete disregard to what the Word of God has to say. You know, whether it's sexually transmitted diseases or, you know, just direct disregard to what God's word has to say. And as a result, many of the things that we experience. Well, verse 27 then concludes by saying, and then they came to Elam, which is where we'll sort of pick it up next week. They now come to a new place, Elam, where look at this, where there were 12 wells of water, quite the difference, and 70 palm trees so they camped there by the water. So God takes them first to Mara, where it is bitter and difficult, and they're in a time of testing 
and and they're they're being tested by the Lord. They're having to look to the Lord, walk by faith, but yet in that place, God reveals something about Himself to them, and answers on their behalf. They learn new things about God in that difficult moment, and then God, in His graciousness, the next place He leads them to is Elam, and it's the exact opposite. Look, Elam is a place where it says there were twelve wells of water and 70 palm trees. It was like a Palm Springs experience. It was the exact opposite. And I love this because it shows me the the wisdom and the balance that God brings about in our lives. God knows that there are times when we need and we will experience a Mara. When we're going to have a bitter experience, we're going to go through things in this life, and it's going to be a time of trial and testing. But God also knows when we need a reprieve, And he knows when we need a time of refreshment and restoration. And God in his graciousness in moderation brings both into our lives in balance. And you know what? When God brings you to Elam, enjoy Elam. Nothing wrong with Elam. Nobody likes to be in Mara. I understand that. But then there's nothing wrong with being in Elam. And if God brings you to a time where it's an oasis, a time of refreshment, and fulfillment and renewal, hey, that is important as well. God knows when we need that in our lives. Again, the Bible says that he you know, leads us through the valleys of the shadow of death, but Psalm 23 also says that he leads us beside the still waters and the green pastures, and God is a good shepherd. He knows how we need the balance of both, and I'm thankful for those times when he brings us to those times when we're refreshed and renewed as well.